Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try andrewandtodd.com or call 888-888-1172. Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. Hugh Hewitt. The interview today is with United States Senator Ted Cruz from the state of Texas. Good morning, Senator. Welcome back. Good morning, Hugh. Good to be with you. Uh, let's start by getting your impression of the meeting between President Putin and President Biden. I thought it was stunningly poor and disturbing. Uh, I, I think this foreign policy trip caps what has been five months of just disaster upon disaster. And in, and in fact, I think it's striking because if you look at the record of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, we've seen in just five short months, we've seen a border crisis. We've seen gas lines. We are seeing a burgeoning inflation crisis. We're seeing a spending crisis that's out of control. And the amazing thing is, as bad as the domestic and economic policy is, I think there's a good argument that the, that the foreign policy has been even worse, that, that in five months we have not seen a litany of foreign policy failures in such a short period of time since Jimmy Carter was president. And the reason for the foreign policy failures is the same reason Jimmy Carter had his foreign policy failures, which is the premises – that Biden and Harris are operating under are exactly wrong. What they've managed to do in five months is alienate our friends and allies and appease and show weakness and offer to send money to our enemies. With regard to Putin. Go ahead. ahead. Well, I was going to say the, the sweet 16 list that President Biden gave to President Putin, I hope TedCruz.org and HughHewitt.com are on that list. Otherwise, we're fair game for cyber uh, uh, attacks from Russia. I, I, I was sort of astonished by that. Here's what you can't hit. The implied message is everything else is fair game. It, it is the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. Imagine you walked into a jewelry store and they handed you a list. Mr. Hewitt, here are the 16 things you cannot steal. <laughs> You'd look around and be like, okay, this is kind of interesting. I mean, it's not even complicated, the weakness that projects. And and what do you think Putin thinks as, as, you know, Biden totters over there to hand him that list? It it is any new president is tested. That that is always the case. And, And he's tested by our enemies, and even to some extent he's tested by our friends. And right now, Biden is failing those tests over and over again. 
I'd like you to comment on the exchange that the president had with CNN's Caitlin Collins. Let's play it for the audience. Cut number two. Why are you so confident he'll change his behavior, Mr. President? Yeah, I'm not confident he'll change his behavior. What the hell? What do you do all the time? So, when did I say I was confident? You I said, said in the next six I months, said, what I said was, let's get it straight. I said, what will change their behavior is that the rest of the world reacts to them and it diminishes their standing in the world. I'm not confident of anything. I'm just stating the fact. But given his past behavior has not changed, and in that press conference, after sitting down with you for several hours, he denied any involvement in cyber attacks. He downplayed human rights abuses. He even refused to say Alexei Navalny's name. So how does that account to a constructive meeting as a president? President Putin. Right? You don't understand that. You're in the wrong business. So, Senator Cruz, what would you think of that exchange? Well, look, he didn't call her a lying dog face pony <laughs> soldier. So, you know, I, I guess that was good. Um, it, it actually was very revealing. Uh, when she asks about what is it that's going to make Putin change, he said, well, you know, if he doesn't have the full respect of the community of nations. What utter garbage. So unlike Biden, Putin is not some terrifying little campus lefty who wants everyone in the faculty lounge to like him. I mean, that, that, that's Biden's foreign policy as he went over to Europe and his approach to all the people of Europe is like me, please, like me, please. And, and what will I do to make you like me, please? Anything you want. What would you like me to do? I mean, we're America, for God's sake. And l- listen, the Putin meeting was a disaster, but it was a disaster before Biden walked in the room. Why is that? Because Putin had already won. His number one geopolitical objective, by far, was to finish building the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. This is a massive natural gas pipeline that, that Putin is building between Russia and Germany. And a year and a half ago, Congress passed bipartisan sanctions to stop that pipeline. I know this well because I authored those sanctions. I wrote the sanctions. We got Republicans on board. We got Democrats on board in the Senate, in the House, passed it overwhelmingly, virtually unanimously. President Trump signed those sanctions into law. The sanctions were signed at 7 p.m. on a Thursday. The pipeline, they halted construction at 6.45 p.m., 15 minutes before the law was signed, they halted construction. So the sanctions worked, stopped them in their tracks. For over a year, Hugh, that pipeline sat dormant. It was a hunk of metal at the bottom of the ocean. Joe Biden gets elected in November, and immediately his foreign policy team begins signaling weakness to Germany, to Russia. And within weeks of Biden getting elected, Putin starts building the pipeline again. Now, I didn't just pass one set of bipartisan sanctions. I passed two, because in December of last year, we passed even tougher sanctions to shut them down. So what happened? These are mandatory sanctions passed overwhelmingly bipartisan through Congress. What happened? Joe Biden decided he didn't want to tick off Germany. He didn't want to tick off Putin. And so he waived the sanctions. He signed a waiver, a national security waiver, that gave the green light for Putin to finish the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. What does that mean? That decision was a generational geopolitical blunder. For the next 40, 50 years, 
Putin and the next tyrant who comes behind him will have billions of dollars a year of revenue in their pocket because Joe Biden gave it to them as a birthday present. They will have the power to use economic blackmail over Europe, and, and Putin is more than happy to do so. And in the meantime, they are destroying jobs here at home. It was the most spectacular act of weakness, and that is entirely on Joe Biden. In fact, it's been reported even his own State Department, and the State Department is not known for having uh, rock-ribbed conservatives, to put it mildly. Even his own State Department was arguing, impose the sanctions, it's the law, and the White House overrode him politically. Joe Biden overrode him and said, nope, we're going to give this as a gift to Putin. And so when Biden walked into Putin, Putin was already laughing because Biden had already given him everything in exchange for nothing. That's what he think is, thinks is diplomacy, is giving billions of dollars to your enemies. Everybody else understands that's just weakness. Former Vice President Cheney, Senator Cruz, was my guest on this program in 2014, and he said about Putin, he's KGB. It struck me the first time I saw him, it's never changed, and certainly his conduct over the years supports that. Putin was a colonel in the KGB, the Soviet secret police. That's what he was and will be, I think, forever. That's how he operates. Agree or disagree? 100% agree. And, and one of the other exchanges in the press conference that Biden did, I think this was a, a day or two ago, uh, Biden was asked at a press conference in Europe before the Putin meeting, is Putin still a killer? And if you watch the video, it is, I think, 28 seconds, and Biden just, just sort of stares, panicked and unsure of what to say, and he meanders, and he goes, um, uh, I mean, it's the most bizarre. For 28 seconds, he says nothing. And, and, and it, it's, it's another manifestation of what we were talking about a minute ago, which is the weakness that Biden is projecting to our enemies. I'll tell you what Biden should have said when he's asked, is Putin still a, a killer? He should have said, absolutely, of course he is. He is a KGB thug. That's who he's been from the day he rose to power. And we are going to treat him accordingly. But that doesn't mean... We're going to go to war and send the Marines into Moscow. But it does mean we understand who Putin is, that he is not our friend, that he is our enemy. And the only thing he respects is strength. What Ronald Reagan, my political hero, your political hero, demonstrated so powerfully is peace through strength. That when you're dealing with bullies and tyrants, don't follow the, 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 the strategy of appeasement, of groveling, of giving them everything they want, but rather negotiate for a position of strength where you're, where you're strong enough that they don't want to mess with you. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris fundamentally don't understand that. It's as if they attended the Neville Chamberlain School of Foreign Policy, because that's how they're approaching it all. Let's stay on foreign affairs, Senator. Uh, I want to turn to Taiwan. Have you visited it? Will you visit it again? And ought we to repudiate the so-called policy of strategic ambiguity and be unambiguous in our commitment to the defense of Taiwan should General Secretary Xi decide to move against it in a hostile, overt way? Yes, yes, and hell yes. Okay, uh, I like that. <laughs> and, 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 and let me explain why I think Taiwan matters so much. Taiwan is critical for dealing with China. China is the single greatest geopolitical threat facing the United States 
today and for the next century. Uh, two light posts on China are Taiwan and Hong Kong. They are both right on the edge of China. Uh, Hong Kong literally attached Taiwan right off the coast. Uh, they are both nations where the people are ethnically Chinese, but they have embraced free enterprise. They have embraced democracy. They have embraced freedom, and they enjoy incredible prosperity. And that prosperity is an existential threat to Xi and the Communist Party dictators. Why? Because it tells 1.3 billion Chinese, wait a second, those guys are just like me. They're, they're ethnically Chinese. They, they might be my cousins. And they're living in incredible prosperity, and I'm living in incredible poverty. What's wrong with my system? Why is communism so much worse than what they have? It's why China hates and fears Taiwan. It's why they hate and fear Hong Kong. Now, we saw Xi move brutally to repress and crush Hong Kong. Uh, you asked about visiting Taiwan. So October two years ago, uh, I, I traveled and did an Asia tour. I went to Pearl Harbor, then Japan, then Taiwan, then India, then Hong Kong. And that was designed to be really a, a, a friends and allies tour, a meeting with major friends and allies all surrounding China. The entire purpose of the trip was to discuss how do we combat the growing, growing threat of China, economic, diplomatic, military, uh, theft and criminal. All of that um, was the topic of discussion everywhere. The question you just raised was a question I asked at every spot. And in Pearl Harbor, I met with the head of the Pacific Band. Um, and I asked at every spot, what do we do if amphibious ships land on the shores of Taiwan? In Taiwan, I was there on their National Day, which is the celebration of their independence. Uh, was the first senator in 34 years to be there on Taiwan's National Day. I stood alongside President Tsai as, as they had, had a parade celebrating their independence. And I, I think it is incredibly important to strengthen Taiwan. And let me tell you something Biden has already done to weaken Taiwan. So let's go back six years. Let's go back to 2015 during the Obama administration. Uh, China is threatened by Taiwan. And China threw a fit that they were upset that Taiwan, um, that they were upset at Taiwan, and they demanded that Obama implement a new policy. And Obama complied. And the new policy is, Anyone from Taiwan, if they are on a U.S. base, if they're on U.S. land, if they're here in the State Department, they can have no symbols of sovereignty. That means they can't display a Taiwanese flag. That means their military officers can't wear their uniforms if they have any insignia that show that they are military officers for Taiwan, because China embraces this bizarre fiction that Taiwan doesn't exist, that it's part of China. It's an utter lie. But the Obama administration decided to appease China and said, we're going to ban all symbols of sovereignty. All right, fast forward to the Trump administration. First three years of the Trump administration, they maintained that policy. I, I pressed the Trump administration hard, repeatedly, end this policy. This policy is stupid. It makes no sense. You should allow Taiwan, like everybody else, to display their symbols of sovereignty 
Don't make them hide their flag. Don't make them hide their uniforms. At the end of the Trump administration, they agreed. Secretary Mike Pompeo, I've been pressing him for his entire tenure on this. On the way out the door, he agreed. He issued a new new ruling, a new guidance that said Taiwan, just like everybody else, can display their symbols of sovereignty. Biden comes in. What did the Biden administration do? Reverse the policy. They went back and said, nope, we will no longer allow Taiwan to display their flags, to display their, to wear their military uniforms on U.S. soil. Why? Because it might offend President Xi. That weakness, and I, I just had a, a State Department nominee in my office yesterday and, and spent about 30 minutes uh, unloading on him on this topic where I said, listen, she sees that, that weakness as a signal what Biden will do if they invade Taiwan. And, and, and there are two things that I am deeply concerned about that I think there's a real possibility will happen in the next four years before the end of 2024. Number one, I think there's a real possibility the Ayatollah Khamenei will develop a nuclear weapon, that they've taken a measure of Joe Biden. They think he's too weak to respond. And so they're going to rush to get a nuke before Biden's gone. And number two, I think there is a distressingly high possibility that China will militarily invade Taiwan for exactly the same reason, that she has taken a measure of Biden, and he doesn't believe there will be any meaningful consequences. And, and those of us in the Congress have to do everything we can to dissuade Xi, to dissuade Khamenei that, that their assessment is wrong. But when the commander-in-chief is weak and engages in impeachment, it invites military conflict. It invites the bad guys to be even worse. So, Senator, we have six minutes left, and I want to turn from what I consider to be the two most important issues in the 2024 cycle, China and Russia, to the 2024 cycle. A quick question and a longer question. The quick question, have you ruled out running for president in 2024? I believe the answer is no. And the longer question, David Bossie, who is on the RNC and is a member of the committee, the chair of the committee dealing with debates for 2024, both primary and general election, was my guest on Friday. He said on that show that the networks have to be decoupled from the Republican debates, that those debates have to be run by people like me who are center-right journalists who ask questions of which the Republican primary electorate is interested. And there are others, Guy Benson, Mary Catherine Hamm, Ben Shapiro, you name it. There are lots of us, although, of course, I yep. should probably be the host. Uh, do you agree with Bossy about the primary debates? No network. They can cover them. They can carry them. But we get to pick the hosts and the people asking the questions. And B, do you agree with Bossy that the Presidential Debate Commission has either got to be top to bottom reformed or done away with because they are in the pockets of Democrats? Absolutely emphatically agree. This is something I've been calling for for years. And, 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 and there's a very simple rule that, that makes a lot of sense and would dramatically change these debates, which is that I think anybody moderating a Republican primary debate in the presidential race should be somebody who intends to vote in the Republican primary. That is a mild, simple step. Uh, right now, the status quo, let's take the last election, 100% of the people asking questions of the Democrats in their primary, 100% of those people voted in the Democratic primary. They're all liberal Democrats. If you have liberal Democrats asking Democrats 
questions. That, that's now you're guessing helpful. that though. You don't know that I'm for sure. That. You're guessing. I, I don't know that. I don't know that for sure, but I know that they're all wildly left. I know George Stephanopoulos was a senior aide at the Clinton White House and has been a Democrat since he was in short shorts. So did, did I pull their voting records? No, but I know the people, and they're all liberal Democrats. Here's the maddening thing. On the Republican side, that was very close to the case as well. In Most 2016, the there was me and Mary Catherine Hamm. In 2016, you, by the way, I voted in the Democratic. I voted for the Democratic uh, 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 primary in 2020. I voted for Bernie Sanders, so I hope that doesn't DQ me. But you're right. You need to have Republicans asking Republican candidates questions. And the reason is, is simple. Look, if if you're if you're asking questions, or Mary Catherine, or Ben Shapiro, or, or Mark Levin, uh, or or Sean Hannity, or any of a host of uh, People who are actual conservatives, if you're asking questions, you guys aren't going to ask softballs. You're going to ask hard questions. But the Democrats who moderate Republican primary debates, their objective, they want everyone on that stage to lose. So their objective is you're all idiots. You're all racist. You're all imbeciles. You're all horrible people. My objective is make sure the American people see how horrible you are so the Democratic nominee wins. If you have actual Republicans engaged, Look, you know, you that Republican primary voters are trying to make a choice in an election. All right, who do I want to back? And you know some of the issues they care about. And it's not the relentless attacks from moderators. And, and, and by the way, it's not just in the primaries. In, in the general election, uh, Trump's debates with Biden, every moderator there is a Democrat. By the way, people think Chris Wallace, because he's on Fox News, is somehow a Republican. Chris Wallace is a Democrat. He's been a liberal Democrat his entire life, and he, and he was he may have been the worst moderator of the entire entire debate. He, he despised Trump and made himself the topic rather than the candidate. I well, this is why, is Senator. It. This is why I asked about the triad in the. 2016 yeah. primary debates and why I would ask about Taiwan. I telegraph what I'm going to ask about because Taiwan is the issue of the day and maybe the Columbia class. I ask about defense, national security and judges. I asked you about judges in 2016 because judges matter to our base. The, the center left journalists uh, of mainstream media do not know much about judges and do never ask that question. And in the Democratic primaries, I think they had three questions on covid and I've been covering uh, – that's all I would have asked about. Yep. Well, and it, so I think for the primaries, we should have moderators who are going to vote in the Republican primary. I think for the general election, rather than pretend all the lefty journalists that, that, that they have there are not lefty journalists, I think we should just own the partisanship. And so each side should get one. So rather than three lefty journalists – we should have a debate moderated by uh, Ben Shapiro and Chris Hayes. That's wrong. And Hugh it, Hewitt and Chris Hayes, but that's okay. I, we, we have three debates, so, 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 <laughs> I, so I'm all good. We, we, you know, we can do Hugh Hewitt and Chris Cuomo. Okay. And, and, and it would be abundantly clear that, look, you're right of center. You're going to ask some tough questions to the Democrats. That's okay. The lefty's going to ask some tough questions to the Republican. And—, and Owning the bias rather than than engaging in a farce, which, which nobody believes anymore. I mean, the press doesn't pretend they are Democratic mouthpieces. They are nothing more. CNN is 
part of the Democratic Party. They are the left arm of the Democratic Party. They do two things. They cheer on Biden and Harris, and they lobby them to go further left. That is the entire role of CNN, and they attack any and all Republicans at all times. They are a professional lying machine. Now, let me, Senator, Trump, let me ask. Trump let me did that for us. He, he made it naked. He did. He did. Let me close with a tough question. Matthew McConaughey is considering running for governor. Would he be a formidable candidate for Greg Abbott? And why would he be if he if you indeed conclude that he is? Yeah, so I, I think he would undoubtedly be formidable. I, I, I hope Matthew decides not to run. Um, I am a big fan of Greg Abbott. He was my boss for five and a half years. He's a close friend and mentor. Um, and I like Matthew personally. I know him a little bit, not well, but I spent a little bit of time with him. And, and he's a very charming, very affable guy. Um, he's a movie star and, and, and a good looking, charming, affable movie star can be a really formidable, uh, candidate on the ballot. And, and, and I hope that doesn't happen, but you know what? He's going to have to make his own decision, uh, whether he's going to run or not. All right. My very last question. We have a minute and a half. It's a hard break, Senator. The Navy is getting screwed and we've spent four trillion. We're on our way to seven trillion and we haven't even fully funded last year's Navy budget and we're underfunded. Are you going to fix that in this so-called compromise infrastructure talk? The, the, the honest answer is no. Uh, if you look at Joe Biden and the Biden budget they put in, they're asking for increases on spending in just about everything. And dead last, literally after every other agency, dead last are the Department of Defense and the Department of Homeland Security. They are their dead last priorities. They don't want to spend on defense. They don't want to spend on the Navy. They haven't yet come out with gutting the military, but I expect in the next four years for them to pro propose serious cuts in military spending. And, and the problem is Biden decided at the start start of his presidency to hand the agenda over to the extreme left. And so the people driving the agenda are Bernie Sanders, our Elizabeth Warren, our AOC. It is the radicals. It's the extreme. And I think Biden made a judgment. That's where the energy and passion in the Democratic Party is. And so they get to drive the train. Um, I don't see any chance of the Democrats agreeing to significant increases in military spending. When Republicans had the White House and both houses of Congress, we passed that end of the law and invested serious amounts of money into rebuilding the military. You're right. We need to do more. But there's a consequence to electing Democrats to the White House. There and, certainly and is. Leading That's the Senate and the House. And, and, and it, it's a dangerous two years and a dangerous four years for the country. Senator Ted Cruz, thank you. Come back to the interview. Keep coming back. I appreciate your time. Take care. God bless. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. Andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888 You'll be glad you did, and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.